This episode is brought to you by Ariat, where performance meets innovation. Visit your local authorised Ariat stockers today to experience the culmination of superior technology, innovation and style. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. After high school, Fran Cooper ticked all the boxes society told her to. Go to university, get a great job, land a promotion and keep climbing the career ladder. On paper, Fran's life looked like hard work and success, but something was missing. So in her late 20s, she took off to Africa, a decision that would lead to a series of experiences and choices in her life that would see her settle down on Mount Riddick Station in Central Australia. No, Fran is not a backpacker, but a full-time, long-term employee of the station. This is her story. Fran and Willow, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us, Steph. So people will probably only really hear you talking, (laughs) but if they do hear another voice, it is baby Willow, who's what, five months old? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we're recording from Mount Riddick Station. And yes, Willow is in the room. Um, so if you hear some little baby noises, that is Willow <laughs> making her first media appearance. Can't guarantee she'll be that quiet. She's pretty noisy when she wants to be. So let's start off with um, how I start every episode, I suppose. Uh, what are you watching, reading or listening to at the moment? Um, so I have just absolutely binge watched Bridgerton in about a weekend. I think I smashed it out in. Um, it was pretty, yeah, pretty worthwhile. Just sat with Willow asleep on me on the sofa and just had a Bridgerton session. It was wonderful. <laughs> and what's that about? Oh, uh, it's, um, <laughs> it's a bit of a random one. It's like a period drama on Netflix. Pretty raunchy. Um, watched it. I was like, Oh my God, this is not quite what I was expecting. But anyway, we'll just carry on. It's something to watch. <laughs> At least Willow was asleep and she's far too young to recognize Very what's going so. on. <laughs> yeah. All right. And as people can probably hear, you have a bit of an accent. So I should also preface by saying we're on Mount Riddick station today and you're clearly not local. Not to um, Mount Riddick. I'm a token pommy. Yes, um, you are. Mount Riddick Station, yeah. But you are not a backpacker. No. You, are, you know, people think, oh, we've got someone on the podcast with an accent. It's a backpacker yarn. You are definitely not a backpacker. Yeah, no, definitely not anymore. And, I'm very much not anymore. So. And you've been here, is it three, 
Yes, it'll be three years uh, start of May. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning then, to the motherland, our (laughs) motherland, and um, also a good podcast, everyone, if you want to listen, Motherland Australia. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, let's start at the beginning and tell us a bit about where you started out from. Yeah, so I um, grew up in the Midlands in England, so sort of the north uh, east side of England, Um, and then sort of didn't grow up on a farm um, but was very much involved in the countryside, had horses, had dogs, my family were always involved in the local um, pheasant and partridge shoots, um, which were all run on local farmers' land. So it was always connected with farming in that way, but never sort of directly. Um, and sort of always knew I wanted to do something with land, be outside somewhere. I didn't want to be stuck in an office. Um, that was something that's always stuck in my back of mind. I never really knew what I wanted to do um, until sort of really I came out here to be honest <laughs> I got the whole way through four years of university and still didn't really know what I wanted to do um, so did you grow up in like I know in some places in England they have villages like were yes. you in a little yeah yeah so we're in a little village called uh, it's called Wadith um, it's spelt Wadworth but it's pronounced Wadith um, and we're in sort of it's an old farmhouse um, in the middle of the, the village basically and dad bought it back in like the oh, I think it was the early 1970s and did it all up um, but it was originally a farm so it had the barns that had all the land with it dad just didn't buy that when he bought the property so we've got the original farmhouse and one of the barns is still sort of our ownership with a nice big garden mum's got all vegetables and fruit trees and all of that sort of stuff so yeah very much Sort of idyllic English village life, really growing up. Walked to primary school, caught the bus to secondary school, all of that sort of stuff. So, and when you say you were involved with local farmers, uh, in when you guys were doing your pheasant shooting, what does a farm look like in Wadworth? <laughs> Tiny <laughs> compared to what we're dealing with out here. So it's um mixture of arable and livestock around there. So there's sheep and cattle, um, and then predominantly wheat. Um, farming, um, even though actually my brother, um, his father-in-law owns the farmland around where they live now. So it's all potato farms all around there. So it's very much a mixture of arable and, and livestock. And what sort of scale are we talking? Oh, I can't even think how big they would be. They'd be tiny. They'd be smaller than the front house paddock at Mount Riddick Station, basically. Yeah. Or they'd at least fit into there. Um, and, and say you're going out for a weekend on the farm for a pheasant shoot. How far out of town are we talking? Is it like a 10-minute drive? Are you heading out somewhere for an hour? Although, in saying that, your roads are very skinny and windy, and I feel like you have to go a lot slower <laughs> over there. Um, it is. So, where our shoots are run, um, so we're probably – 10, 15 minutes from Doncaster, which is the town which is closest to our village. And then the shoots are run between two um, villages. So they're run between Wadith and our next door village called Tickill. Um, and they're all on the land interspersed between those. And it's probably a five-minute drive between Wadith and Tickill. Um, so it's on the farmland between those two villages, basically. So, cool. yeah, tiny scale. So it's rural, like, for England. Oh, very rural for England, but... Yeah, nothing compared to here. <laughs> Polar opposite, basically. Oh. But you obviously enjoyed it enough that you knew you wanted to pursue some sort of career in agriculture or land management, something outside in the in the open spaces. <laughs> Willow's like, yes, I also want to pursue this. Good girl. 
Um, yeah, no, very much so. I always knew I wanted to be outside. I'd grown up being outside having horses and doing the shoot and stuff. So I'd always grown up being outside, um, sort of in all elements. Like England, it's not nice and sort of sunny like it is all the time. It's come rain or shine. You're outside doing your horses and going for a ride or going for a walk with the dogs and that sort of stuff. So I always knew I wanted to be outside in some way, shape or form with whatever I, whether I did later on in life. Um, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, always, always outside, very much an outside kid. Um, didn't really enjoy being inside. So did you have any jobs throughout school? Um, no, not really. Um, it was always just up at the horses. So if I had friends that wanted stuff doing with their horses, I'd help them ride. Um, I remember we had an older lady who had a young horse at the stables where I kept my horses. And, um, yeah, he was, he was a bit of a nightmare. That horse was such a handful. So I would always help. Janet out with her horse because just to get a bit of fizz out of him before she got on him so he didn't ditch her again. Um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily a job, but it was always up at the stables helping people out and sort of just messing around with the horses for most of the time. So I was quite lucky. Yeah, I didn't have to go out and get a, get a job when I was 16 or that sort of thing. I was allowed to go and just be with the horses and, and that sort of stuff. I was very lucky in that side of things, really. So if your childhood and teenage years, early life was spent going out on pheasant shoots and then um, a lot of time with horses and in England it's predominantly English riding. I don't yeah. think there's any kind of form of stonk or western <laughs> no, or anything there, any kind no. of cowboying. Um, how did you decide when, you know, it comes to year 12 or I'm not sure what you call that in England? Uh, we'd be year 13 in oh, England. Oh, really? Yeah. You actually call it year 13? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So oh. year 13 is so your last year at school in England. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize you had 13 years. Yes. That's yeah. rough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when you come to that year, how do you decide what you're going to pick for uni or do you guys call it college there? No, it's university. So I went to a university college. It just depends on, um, I can't remember what it is. There's a certain, I think you've got to have a certain number of people going to the places to whether it's a college or a university, oh, something like that. Okay. I can't remember exactly. But yeah. yeah, I went to, it was a college university at the time I started and it's now a fully accredited university. Um, so basically with um, what I did, I looked at what my brother was doing um, and I actually ended up doing exactly the same course as what he did um, at university, even though we ended up taking completely different career paths. We both did the same course at university. So I saw what he was doing and went and spent a week up with him where he was on his placement year. So the third year of that university course, you go and spend a year out working in the industry and then you come back in and do your final year. Um, and I spent, um, a bit of time with Tom, um, spent a week up with him and just sort of thought, Oh, this looks all right. Like he's, yeah, you've got a bit of office work, but he's out. He's going to the farms. He's going checking out woodland. He's going checking out livestock, all of that sort of stuff. I was like, yeah, that's, that looks all right. I'll give that a shot, see if I can get in. Uh, and I just scraped getting into university with my grades. My grades in my final year at school weren't great, um, but they were just enough to get me in onto that course so that I could then sort of, yeah, progress ahead with that and think about what my career path might want to be. So it was, um yeah, my brother was actually quite a big influence on that side of things, really. Okay, but don't keep me in suspense any longer. What was the course that you chose to study at uni? <laughs> um, so the course that I did, it's a Bachelor of Science with an honours degree attached to it. Um, and it is called Rural Enterprise and Land Management. And I did that um, at Harper Adams University. And it's in a little little town in a county called Shropshire um, in, in England, sort of in the Midlands, but on the west side um, in England. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, um, yeah, it was a very small agricultural university. One of only, it's now only one of two agricultural universities in England. It was one of three at the time. So there's not 
very much specialization in agriculture in England. There's only two in the whole country. Yes. Yeah. There's a fair few colleges um, Mm -hmm. that specialize, but university, full universities that specialize in agriculture, food production, uh, veterinary sciences, all of that sort of stuff. There's only two places that really do that. Um, So there's, yeah, there's Harper Adams University and then Sirencester University. Um, There's quite the rivalry between the two of them. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what is involved, you know, what sort of units are you doing and things are you learning about in this degree? Because it sounds like a very broad you know, when you say, what was it? Rural management, uh, rural enterprise, rural enterprise and land management. land management, like that could really be anything yeah. and everything. Very broad spectrum. So that, that's probably one of the things I did like about it. It's quite a vocational degree. So it gives you a lot of avenues for different job prospects when you've finished. Um, so I did stuff um, along the lines of taxation. Um, so looking at your inheritance and how to sort of manage your tax side on that, um, land law, um, evaluation of property and of land, um, forestry, animal management. Um, what else did we do? Um, construction. So learning how to do all your measurements for your buildings and surveying, um, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was really, really varied, um, in the, across the four years. Um, when you got to your final year, there were some elements that you could pick um, that were a bit more specific. So I um, did an element on sustainability. So looking at solar panels and um, wind and sort of um, making properties a bit more sort of environmentally friendly, I suppose it would be. Um, but it was, so, yeah, such a broad spectrum degree. That's why it really drew me towards it because you could go, you could have gone into forestry, you could go into um, surveying like I did um, when I finished uh, and then sort of estate management, which was more down the line that my brother went down. Um, but you could also do um, tax um, or specific land law, be like um, um, you could probably go down the line of being sort of a lawyer um, that specializes in land aspects from it. So it's very, very broad spectrum. Um, which was really, really what drew me to it and draws, I think it draws a lot of people to it. It sounds incredible. You know, I did, I thought my degree was quite varied. I did ag science and we would do, you know, um, pastures, cropping, soil science, grain marketing, livestock, animal production, you know, all, and then all different facets of animal production. I thought that was really varied, but I would have loved to learn more. And I think it would be like a advantage for a lot of people these days if we understood, you know, like pastoral, like legislation mm. and ten- the tenant yeah. rules and all sorts of yeah. extra things, which you have to kind of go and figure out on your own afterwards. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Have some so. structured learning about that. Yeah. I suppose, yeah. I suppose it would be similar to the degree you did, but just with the, the so legal many. side of things added so, into And it taxation. Well. Like, yeah. oh, I hated tax, but, oh, but it's so <laughs> it's important to, to understand. I feel like the most important things that you need in life are like, how to make a balanced and nutritious diet and then understanding finances like you know, <laughs> yeah. stock ta- stock market taxes yeah. and like um, foreign exchange. And those are like the things they just won't teach you in school. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you said you went into surveying. Now I need – I'm going to – I know other people listening may understand. You tried to give me a bit of a, um, a brief overview last night and let's be honest, it went straight over my head. <laughs> so when Fran told me that she was a qualified surveyor, I was like, oh, are you like one of those dudes on the side of the road with the little tripod things that just stand there and look through, um, which is sort of but not really, like it's a very yeah, small part of you can do that from my degree that I did and, and being a chartered surveyor, like I help Amber out with um, <laughs> doing levelling on some pads and stuff using one of those machines, so I know how to work them. Um, but sort of the element I went down, so I'm – as well as my degree, um, I'll just explain, as well as my degree, I did um, 
a charter ship. Um, so I'm a member of the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, um, which is a qualification which can go across the world. It's not just specific to the UK. Oh, is that like, I always wondered what, um, that meant when you could see like someone being a chartered accountant. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize you could be chartered in something else. Yes. Yeah. So there's, uh, yes, certainly surveying and accountancy, um, you can get charterships in. So yeah, as well as having my, um, Bachelor of Science and Honours degree, I've got, um, a member of the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors attached to my name. Um, not that I use it very much, but it's there. <laughs> Rock off into Alice Springs. Hi, I'm yeah. Fran. <laughs> M. Ricks. Mm, thanks. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, and that, um, Again, it qualifies you for any aspect of surveying that you want to do um, in the UK. You can specialize within it. So I took the rural pathway within it, but there's all different pathways that you can take within that membership um, for that attached to your surveying. Um, and then, so yeah, through that, um, I can practice. Um, I can set up my own firm. I can um, practice and be insured through them. Um, I'm sort of, I've still got it there at the moment, even though I'm not practicing as a surveyor, I've got it on a back burner so that if I did ever want to go back to surveying, my qualification's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just have to read up on all the latest legislation and sort of renew myself with regards to what's happening in the surveying world. And I could then start practicing again. So it's something that you can come back to later on in life, Okay, um, which is proven pretty handy. So this next bit, I'm going to need you to just pretend that I'm five years old for now. Like, yeah, yeah. talk me through what your, first of all, how did you pick surveying out of all, you know, you just said the depth and breadth of the degree, you had endless opportunities. It was so varied. Yeah. So how did you pick surveying? And then- can you just give us all a rundown on exactly? Cause I don't even understand, you know, the guys on the road with their little things. I yep. don't even really get how that works. Like yeah. I'm not big on the life skills. <laughs> um, so yeah. How did you pick it? Um, I was slightly forced in my hand down that path. So when I came out of university, that was in 2010, I'm giving away my age. <laughs> I left in 2010 and there was actually a bit of a lull in the job front. Um, so I applied for, I think I applied for four or five jobs out of university and I only got offered one, um, which was the job that I then stayed in for eight years. Um, so it kind of forced my hand a little bit down there, but I looked at it, um, the job application sort of thought, oh, it's a bit different. It looks all right. We'll, we'll give that a go. It's not something I studied in depth when I was at university. Um, but I knew sort of certain aspects of it. So I was like, yeah, we'll give that a try. Um, we'll, we'll go down the utilities surveying side of things. Um, so, and it was quite specific, um, what I ended up doing. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, yeah, that was sort of, I was forced really to head down that path of the utilities. It wasn't really something I wanted to do. I'd seen my brother doing the estate management side of things, which is, yeah, going out and meeting the farmers and saying, oh, hi, how's your day? How's that building looking? Or we need to put a new building up for you because they would be renting their farm off that big estate. Oh. Um, so yeah, you go out and say, we've got some money here. We can put you a new shed up or a new manure storage area and um, that sort of thing. That was what that I'd sort of like fun. Yeah. That's what I'd sort of had more experience in because I'd spent that bit of time with my brother doing that. And, um, uh, sort of my year I took out at university, I did estate management. Um, so it was going and meeting the farmers and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas this was very much a different aspect. And I was like, Oh, it's not what I've done, but we'll give it a go. We'll see money. how it works. Make yeah. Some money. yeah. It's a job at the end of the day. So I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll give that a try. Um, and it was 
worlds apart from what I'd studied at university and, and what I'd seen anyone else in surveying doing because all my other friends went into the traditional side of surveying. So more your estate management and that side of things. Whereas I was the, the new and upcoming bit of surveying. It could be seen as, um, in the UK, there was, wasn't many, very many firms that did what I did. So which was going out and representing utilities firms. So that's gas, electric, water, um, renewables, um, is a big thing in the UK. So we are wind farms and your solar farms and getting permission for those things to happen. Um, so it's going to your private landowners and saying, um, we've got this project, um, that's going to be going ahead. Uh, we're going to affect your land. Um, we're here to talk to you about how we're going to affect it and, um, get access to do the works, um, whether that be through negotiating with them, um, or through a legal notice, um, served on them that they then can't refuse entry on. So it was, yeah, completely different to what I'd studied at university. If there was none of the nice, um, going and have a cup of tea with the farmer, it was, um, going, telling them basically, we're going to come in and we're going to wreck your land and then we'll try and put it back. But can't promise anything really because we like to do works at the wrong time of year, pretty much. Um, so yeah, it was very, um, a lot more negotiation and conflict um, side of things that I'd never experienced through anything that I was doing at university. It was, yeah. That's a whole other game. degree oh, in and of itself. 100% resolution. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just love that you, you know, we love Fran. Fran's great. And by the end of the episode, you'll all love Fran too. But right now I'm like, you're like the person, if we're watching like Aaron Brockovich, like you're the bad guy. I was you the were the bad, bad guy. guy. Yeah, I was the bad guy. And that is ultimately what sort of – change things for me because I got sick of being the one ringing up and saying, hi, how are you going? Um, here's a legal notice slapped on you that you can't refuse. Well, you can refuse, but we'll argue and we'll probably win. We'll drown you in um, lawyers. Yeah. And, and we're, we're coming in. Um, so sorry, but not sorry. We're going to do it. And I just got sick of being the one just ringing up, delivering bad news all the time. It just gets draining. Cause you're, yeah, you're constantly the bad guy. You are, and, and you try to be the good guy because you try and do the right thing by the landowner and getting them sort of everything that they could ask for to make it happen nicely. But at the end of the day, stuff always goes wrong. Uh, it's just life. Things go wrong and people aren't usually that accepting of it when they've been forced into it. And it's, yeah, it's pretty full on when you're getting yelled at going, your contractors have done this. I told them not to do that. I'm like, well, I also told them not to do that. But at the end of the day, they're just going to do what they need to do to get the job done. And yeah, it's, it means making a mess of your property. And I'm really sorry, but we'll try and fix it when we're finished. And it's, yeah, it's it draining doing that every single day. It gets pretty full on. And you did it for eight years, which yeah. is a very long, that's like a very big commitment to, yeah. to a job, especially in this day and age. Yeah. So aside from the, the, like, I suppose client liaison, uh, role that you had. Did you get to use any of your degree in terms of like actually going and doing some surveying or did you have to like read environmental reports and or write up reports, you know, or was it just a lot of people management? A lot of people management, but I got to the stage, obviously being eight years in the company, I'd worked my way up to pretty sort of not far off being at the top. So I was, um, an associate in the company. So that's three levels down from being a director in the company. So I was pretty, pretty high up and I'd worked bloody hard to get there. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, not, not many females in that industry. So I was like, come on, we can do this. Like, um, I was, I was enjoying it at the time. So I stuck my head in and got on with it. And, um, 
Yeah, so uh, it started off being a lot of the grunt work, so doing a lot of the paperwork, um, reading um, sort of a lot of the law behind it all because um, it was law that I hadn't learned at university. Um, it was all this law specific to those particular industries, um, so specific to water and electricity and gas. They've all got their own acts um, within England, so you've got to learn what's behind those and what gives you access um, onto that person's land and how long you've got to wait for that access to be allowed. So there's seven days for like um, preliminary surveying work. So like um, ecology, if they want to go in and do ecology reports, you'll serve a seven day notice for them to come in and do that. And that will give that farmer seven days notice that there's going to be people walking across his property. So if you've got any dead bodies, you might need to dig yeah. them up and move them along. Yeah. <laughs> you thought you were safe burying your bodies out in your no, bush. No, like. not in England. I'm going to stick a pipeline through it at some point. Jack the Ripper, there's out there. Someone would be like, oh, crap, now i got to yeah. move everything. Yeah, so it was – um. Yeah, pretty, pretty full on. And you meet some interesting characters. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, we had the, like all the legal side of things. So, and more often than not, so you would be the person that would find out who would be the legal owner of that land. So you'd have to go and do your online land registry searches that would tell you who would own it. And then you've got to go meet that person before you can serve a legal notice on them or do uh-huh. best endeavors to have met that person. Um, it's pretty, pretty interesting in England. You get some people that are registered owners of land, but. You can't find them. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to go and so go and try and find them. And, um, a lot of the area where I was working in, there was, um, a lot of the, tra- the traveling community, though, known as like gypsies in, in England. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, oh, my man. big fat gypsy wedding. Oh, yeah. We watched that they on YouTube. They are interesting. Is it the, is it, Romanov gypsies? Uh, Romani. So there's, yeah, um, Rom- yeah. Uh, Romani gypsies. And then there's Romanovs the, are the, are the Russians, the Russian royal family, my <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not the same. Uh, so you get you get the Romanies and then you have the Irish contingency. Um, so I had a fair bit to do with them just because of the area of land that I was working in. So I was working a lot around um, sort of Gloucester and Cheltenham, um, which is down in the south, uh, mid to southwest um, of England. And so, yeah, I had some interesting run-ins um, with those types of people in that. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting story for you. Um, we went out, we had a big pipeline I was working on. I say big pipeline, it's tiny compared to stuff that we would be doing here. But for England, it was like nine kilometers of, um, it was just shy of half a meter, the pipe in That's diameter. That's like a third of the distance oh. of how we get water to the homestead yeah, here. it's ridiculous. From the nearest bore. <laughs> so ridiculous. Like the distances are just obscene. It's so strange. <laughs> I'm like, oh, big pipeline, nine Ks. <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we had that pipeline and it went through um, – an Irish travelers, um, property. And, and we went out and met this guy. I was with my boss at the time. I was still learning. Uh, but it was like my first big project that I had that I was doing a lot of the work on. And he just came along to, to oversee things. So we went and had this meeting with this chap and he's like, Oh, I'll come with you just so to be on the safe side. Like I was female and young. I'm going out to a site that's predominantly male. Um, so he's like, I'll come with you on that one. Just, um, just cause we know it's, yeah, it's not sort of technically 100% above board. We'll see what's going on down there. They might kidnap you and put you in the... Well, that's the thing. We got back to the office and then a couple of weeks later, um, my boss sent me a link to a newspaper article and it was this such and such family have been sent to jail for enslaving people that they picked up off the streets. Oh, God. And I looked at the article and that was the bloke that I'd met on site and I was like, 
oh no, um, I've just met him. That's really scary. Well, there's a lot of like marrying your first cousins in, in that culture. So they're probably like fresh blood. Yeah. We've got too like, many fingers and toes. Oh my God. So yeah, I met that and I was like, wow, that, that's a pretty close call. I'm never going to that site on my own ever again. Um, but I knew, I knew that they'd gone to jail. They'd been put away for it. Um, and it came, came later on in the scheme that I had to serve another notice. And because they were, um, not all above board and not, we couldn't, meet the right person in that family to give a notice over to. We'd always put a notice up on site as well. Um, so you'd send it in a post and then you'd drive down there and like um, zippy tie it to some gates or a fence or something. Um, and it was like five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, this has got to be done today. So it was a mad dash drive down there. I said, right, I'm going to have to do this on my own. I was like, oh man, why? <laughs> so I drove down and they had these big electric gates on the front of this property. Um, I pressed the buzzer hoping that no one would be home. Uh, and oh, then no. these gates just open and I'm like oh man probably shouldn't do this so I rang my boss I'm like FYI I'm going in here there's electric gates they're probably going to close behind me if I haven't called you in half an hour to say I'm alive you know where I am come and find me (laughs) so it was proper sketchy I was like oh so nervous doing this at like five o'clock in the afternoon because everyone's going to leave the office in half an hour (laughs) and then there's going to be no one to call I was like oh geez if I get enslaved I'm not happy about this. So yeah, sketchy, sketchy moment with him. I was like, oh, did not enjoy that one. So yeah. And then trying to find like, cause we have to, at the end of a scheme, we've got to offer compensation, um, for any damages that we've done, um, or any like loss of crop that they've had, or if they can't graze their animals there, we've got to pay them a certain amount of money. Um, and it came to the end of that, like, even though that bloke was in jail, we still have to, um, send money somewhere or offer to send money somewhere. Um, so I'm like trying to contact them in jail. I'm like, how do you contact someone when they're in jail? So like having to go through the custodial system, um, and contacting the prison and saying, um, we'll be writing to this person, um, with an offer of compensation. Like if we don't hear from you, we will understand that that's, it's not required. So I'm just like, this is the, just the strangest situation I've ever dealt with in my life. Like how, how do you approach that? How do you approach paying money to someone in jail when they're not supposed to have it? And where is it then supposed to go to? It's trying to figure all of that out. And it's just, yeah, you don't get taught that sort of stuff at university. God, no, no. And it's also, is it just me or is it a bit bizarre that we're talking about gypsies. So mm-hmm. the whole concept of being a gypsy is you move around and yeah. you, these people own land. Oh, they own land. Yes. Yeah. Under probably like, about three or four different names. It's yeah. so strange. Like, how do you have a base if you're a gypsy? Like you're supposed yeah. to just be anyway. Yeah. It's obviously oh, they, they live in like the static caravans. So the ones that don't move easily, yeah. like they're still in a caravan, but they can't move it. It's yeah. It's, it's very, very strange. Modern I had heaps of that to deal with and it was just like, oh, mind blown. They do not teach you about this at university. Gosh, and no. it's, yeah, very, very strange. Um, sort of a bit of a spur off from it. It's kind of led me to, um, sort of going back to my university and saying, this is like a career place that you don't talk about in that degree. Um, do you fancy having someone coming back to lecture to the students about this as an option, um, and a career path? Um, you need to look into the utility side of things as a career path because it's up and coming and there's going to be heaps of jobs available there. Um, 
that that degree will serve them for. Um, you just need to update what you're teaching. And they're like, yeah, cool. So I actually ended up going back to university, my old university, and doing a bit of lecturing. Oh, wow. Which was Look so random. I was like, oh, I'm so grown up. Yeah, yeah like, oh, I'm one of those weird. old boring people at the front of the room now. <laughs> no, I was like, I'm not that much older than you guys, but I feel really old currently. <laughs> like, I should not be lecturing at this age. <laughs> it's old fuddy-duddies at lecture, not like people in their 20s. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really, really random. But, yeah, that led on to – being able to go back and do a bit of lecturing, which was, yeah, just so strange. So, so strange. But that's not where you are today. So you did that for eight years. And as you yeah. said, you progressed through the ranks. You were quite yeah. senior in the company. It was a good money. Yeah. Let's be honest. Everybody wants to know. Was yeah. It good no. Money? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. Like I had to work hard for it and I had to push, um, quite a bit. Um, so it's, it's, it's so funny. Like being a female, you feel like you just got to work a hundred percent harder. Um, and I know it's not always the case, but I was always sort of trying to prove the point that just because I'm female doesn't mean I can't do this a lot of the time. I'm like, no, come on, I can do this. Like I can handle those difficult cases. I pass that across to me. And like, and a lot of the, I, the agents that you would contact on the other side, which was like, oh, she's just, she's just a young female. She didn't know what she's doing. And then you just bombard them with information. They're like, whoa, okay, <laughs> she does know what she's doing. That's pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, it was, and it, yeah, I worked hard for where I got to and the salary was, was all right. Um, but you just constantly feel like you're, you're pushing to keep up with, with the men. And I know the industry has done reviews on male salaries compared with females and there is a difference. Um, and it's just ridiculous in this day and age that it should still be like that. Cause there's so, if I look back now at the firm I used to work at, the percentage of females to males, the girls way outweigh the boys. And I'm like, ah, oh, you need to up your game. It's because they're cheaper to run. So that's why they're hiring <laughs> more girls. Have them all in. But we actually do a better job specifically with that. Unless oh, I don't want to rule out boys. Like some of them are very good and very precise and very thorough, but you can pretty much always guarantee on the girls to be very precise, to have stuff done on time and not be rushing it last minute because <laughs> it gets a bit stressful when you do that in that sort of industry, when you're serving legal notices all the time. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it, I don't know. It just kind of, kind of shows that we've got a place and um, we can do really, really well in quite a tough industry because girls usually are much more thorough to the point and they get all the information. It's a lot more organized and it's all in a spreadsheet, which is really easy to follow, <laughs> not on random pieces of paper in the file. And it's, yeah, it's quite interesting looking back going, yeah, the girls are killing it. They are absolutely crushing it in that industry and in that firm and doing really, really well with it. And I'm like, good. I'm glad I sort of paved a bit of a way. It sounds like I'm bigging myself up massively, but there weren't many girls in the firm when I started. And to look back now and I'm like, good on you girls. Well done. Yeah. You're doing all right. <laughs> so you, you're kicking goals. You're climbing the ranks, making good money, life's, you know, and you're one of few women in the company or in yeah. the industry. Talk to me about the decision to leave and why that came about and yeah it's a, it was a funny one I sort of looking back at it now I can go holy hell I was suffering some amount of anxiety about, about the pressure I was I'm pretty bad I put a lot of pressure on myself but also the pressure that industry was putting on me to perform um and constantly being on time under budget um, and not having any issues, which is just nigh on impossible in what we were doing. But it is, yeah, looking back at it, I was like, I was under the cosh a lot and I was just mentally struggling, but you just bury it, buried it under work. Like you'd 
be in the office from seven o'clock in the morning uh, until six o'clock at night every day of the week. Um, and you come home and you just be knackered and you might go for a run or sort of stuff like that or and just go home, cook dinner and go to bed. And then the same thing the next day. And like, I loved who I was working with. I had an awesome team. Like by the time I left what I was doing, there was only a team of three of us. Um, but we were managing a really big client for the firm, bringing in heaps of money, doing really, really well. And I loved working with my team. They were just awesome. But the day to day grind of constant negativity, constant, um, sort of arguments with people, it just ground me down. I was just got to the stage where I was like, I don't know how much longer I can do this for. And I knew the firm sort of valued me um, because of my performance, whether it be because I was grinding myself into the ground, I was still performing, but I knew they valued me. And sort of it came to the point where they're like, she's going to walk, like she's, she's just going to go. And we need to try and do something to try and help that situation. Like she's, she's a valued member of a team. Let's see what we can do. So I ended up having a bit of a sit down with my boss and just said, I need to catch a break somehow. And I don't know how to do it. Um, and just, yeah, had a very, very honest chat with my boss and just like, love who I'm working with, but the day to day grind of this is just not working for me at the minute. Like I, I've got to, I've got to try and do something to try and alleviate that and find myself a bit again. Really? I was sort of like losing my mojo. I was going to work every day and you just dread getting up. You're just like, Oh God, I've got to go to the office again. I've got to deal with this person again. It's going to be the same argument that I had last week with the same person. And it's just like, Oh, don't want to go. Just don't want to get up. Don't want to go to work. And yeah, I was just like, something's not right here. Something's really, really not right. I've got to change something. Um, just not, not happy. Um, not following down that path where I thought I would be heading. Um, but like I said, I was kicking goals and everything. Like you're progressing, you've got a good salary, you've got good friends around you. Like career wise, you're doing amazing, but just internally, there's just something missing. Um, so I was just like, yeah, something's going to have to change here. Um, and yeah. And I just, yeah, like I said, I had that sit down with my boss and just had a really frank conversation with him and just said, I've got to change something here. It's not, not working. And he sort of off the record was like, you thought about doing any traveling? And I'm like, eh, no, not really. I've been so stuck in work for the last eight years. I have not thought about traveling, but then I sat there and thought back and went, I always wanted to do a bit of traveling out of myself. My brother, I was always the one that wanted to go on holidays and wanted to go traveling and go different places. I wasn't very much a home bird. Um, so yeah, it made me sit down and go, Hmm, actually, maybe I do want to think about something. So yeah, I just started off by booking a week's holiday to Africa, um, to go and ride some horses. And I was like, I've always wanted to do a horseback holiday of some sort. It wasn't necessarily safari, but I was like, Oh, let's give this a try. I've always heard that Africa's amazing. And yeah, Googled the place where I sort of, thought about going. I was like, oh, is it good for singles to go on? Because I was sort of on my own. I'm like, I'm going to go and do this holiday on my own. No, like no one else wants to go. So I'll do it on my own. I'm like, big girl pants on. Let's go. <laughs> Let's give this one a try. And um, yeah, then sort of it all spiraled from there. I wouldn't say spiraled down. I'm pretty sure it spiraled up, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was all a big change like from there. Like a cyclone, like yeah. a twister. Oh, yeah. Tornado, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, and all, yeah, all headed on from there as to sort of the next stage in life um, as to what I wanted to 
do or finding out what I wanted to do. I don't think anyone ever really, really knows what they want to do in life. Um, not a hundred percent of the time anyway, but it sort of had to be my next direction of going, let's try and do something that's going to make me happy on all levels, not just one. So um, your work was like, okay, cool. You want to go on a week's holiday to Africa? No worries. Yeah. Totally expecting you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. did that work out for them? Uh, well, I did. I did come back just for a short period of time. So I went on a holiday in the May. Um, was it May? Yes. End of May, I think. Um, and had the most amazing time. And I was like, this is living. I'm like, this is just, I know it's a holiday and holidays are supposed to feel like that, but I was like, just felt happy again. I was in a happy place. I was on a horse. I hadn't been horse riding very much at all before then. Um, and just, yeah, got back to work. And I'd spoken with um the staff at the safari place when I was away on holiday. And I was just like, ah, oh, they do a three-month volunteer program. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe I could get some time off to do that. So I got back and my boss could see that I was just, I was happy. I'd had a holiday. I'd had a break, felt a bit rejuvenated. But he could just still see that something still wasn't quite right. So I sat down with him and said, look, they do this volunteer program for three months. Um, What does the company think about a secondment um, and to, like giving me some time off um, with a job to come back to. And he's like, we've never done that before. Um, let me have a talk with all the other bosses about it and see if it's something that we could consider. And they came back to me and said, yep, we can, we can give you six months off with your job to come back to um, off your trot go and have fun. Um, so yeah, by the October, <laughs> I was back in Africa. Um, for So I went to South Africa and did three months there and then went and did six weeks in Botswana. Um, and yeah, just met some awesome, awesome people um, and have made friends for life. Um, the guys down in South Africa are just amazing. They're like a second family. I always know that if I went back there, you just slot straight back in. They're just amazing people. And it's, yeah, was a very, very welcome change, um, which has then led on to some very, very different sort of life choices um, and meeting amazing people that have led to the circumstances that I'm in now, basically. And it was, yeah, I think work were a bit shocked. Um, They're a bit like, wow, okay, she's really, really taking this six months um, and she's really going for it. But I remember talking to my boss whilst I was away and doing stuff and he's like, good on you. Like you needed to do this. Um, You needed to go and just have a break, find yourself again, find what makes you happy. Um, and it was, it was good to have that security in the back of my brain that I did have a job to come back to. Um, cause who doesn't want to have yeah. an income to come back to? You don't want to just go sort of, I'm just going to quit and yeah, not know where sort of stuff's going to like life is going to be happening. Um, <laughs> um, I'm like, hello, have you seen the last year of my life? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to offend anybody <laughs> but like it's it's kind of a it's a funny story like in England it's so hard to find properties and places to live and they're so expensive especially down where I was working I was working near Oxford which is commutable to London so everyone gets paid a, paid a London wage but lives out in the countryside so it hikes your rent prices up and it's just extortionate to rent especially on your own um, I didn't want to live with other people so I was like I've, I've still got to have that basis of income there waiting to come back to that if I do want to still keep living and working down there that I can afford to do that because um, it was just extortionate and um, so yeah they were yeah they were 
they were really good about it. I'll, I'll give them credit on that, that they were, yeah, they were really, really understanding that I needed that time to go away um, and just have some fun again. <laughs> so you go to South Africa for three months and then Botswana for six weeks. Yes. So that's about four and a half months. Yeah. So you still had about six weeks. Yeah. Were you planning on spending that in Africa and then going back to England or had you intended to go somewhere else? So um, at my end of my six weeks, because um, they could only offer me the six weeks um, when I was in Botswana at the the stables that I was at. Um, my mum actually flew across and met me in Botswana and we had a week's holiday um, doing safari and like she'd never traveled. So it was, yeah, way out of mum's comfort zone. I was like, come over here. It's amazing. <laughs> come and do this. Like, and yeah, she loved it. So we did a week um, on safari there and then went and saw my cousins in Abu Dhabi um, for a week, sort of did a little hop around on the way back uh, and then got back to England and yeah, I met, um, she's probably now one of my best friends. I met Ali when I was in, um, first in South Africa and then spent my time when I was in Botswana with her. Um, and you live and breathe each other. You're with each other 24 hours a day and there's not really many other people there. There's just the staff, um, the stables that you're managing. Um, and we were best, best buddies. So yeah, I got back and, um, I think I had the conversation with my boss when I was still in Botswana. And said, how would you feel about offering me another six months off work with a job to come back to? <laughs> Just a little bit cheeky. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll think about it. But he was like, it's a one-time offer if we do give it. Like you either take the six months or you don't get it. Um, so I was like, right, okay. Um, so, yeah, I rang Ali and said, um, I think I might have another six months off work. Um, how Do you reckon I could get a job in Australia somewhere? Um, and she rang and Steve at Mount Riddick. She knew them from the girls being down at school at Negs in New South Wales. And Ali went to university at Armadale and kept her horse at Negs and worked a bit of that to get a bit of money coming in. Um, so knew the Cadzo family from doing that. So she rang Beck and said, got this really great girl that knows how to ride horses. Do you want someone to help sort of work your horses for, I think it was six months. I'd originally looked at coming across to Australia for. Um, certainly three months here and then going and doing a bit more traveling around Australia. And um, yeah, I got a call back from Ali saying, yeah, I've got you a place at Mount Riddick Station um, if you want it. So I was like, oh, I should probably sort a visa out. <laughs> um, hadn't done any of that by that point. So yeah, I spent the six weeks that I was back home in England before I came here um, helping out doing lambing at my sister-in-law's family farm. Um, so yeah, I'd get up and go and do lambing. And then in the afternoon, I'd get home and do some visa work and submit a visa and then sit and wait for my visa to turn up. And then, yeah, it got granted. And I was like, bye guys, I'm off to Australia. See ya. We'll see you soon. Um, yeah. And then came here for initially three months. Um, so yeah, until August, I did May four. I did four, uh, no, three months because I left at the start of August. I had to go back to England for a wedding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I came and did that and then, yeah, met Abro when I first got here <laughs> and he threw a big old spanner yes, in the works. We are. We're going to get to that in just a second. <laughs> yeah. I just want to jump back to when your first six month, uh, time off work was coming yeah. to an end. Yeah. And you, so, you know, I've only got a couple of weeks left and I'm supposed to go back to England, go back to, I'm using the air quotes here, yeah. life. Yeah. And yeah. leading up to that, just talk me through how you were feeling and what you were thinking before plucking up the courage to ring your bosses and ask for another six months off. Like, were you, were you aware the time that you were away 
like, you know, you've got six months off. Were you aware from like, you know, day one, like, okay, I've got six months. Okay. Yeah. I've got five months. Okay. I've got four and a half months. Like were yeah. you kind of counting down and aware of when you had to, to do a that? certain point. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was, um, it was only a limited period of time that I had. So I was trying to enjoy everything as much as I could and just have those real life experiences. So like Ali and I would, um, go and we made really good friends with our next door neighbors when we were in Botswana. We actually had next door neighbors. <laughs> the ironic thing. So we'd pop across to theirs and go and have like pizza nights and look out across the Limpopo River and the elephants crossing across the river. And you're there going, I've got to soak up every single second of this because it's just awesome. Um, and yeah, just really, really making the most of, of everything that I had because I knew I didn't have that long, but there came a point where I was just like, do I really want to go back? Like, I've got to think like, is that something I want to really go back to? Do I want to go back to the humdrum of being in an office? Is that what makes me happy? And it made me think back to sort of very first starting out in career and going, I don't want to be stuck in an office. And that's what did appeal to me originally about that job as well, is because you would be going out sort of two, three, four times a week, going and meeting landowners and talking to people and not being stuck in the office all the time, which was where I had got to before I left because I was such a senior position. You're just expected to do more paperwork and be in the office more to sort of do that firm side of things, make sure your billings are done on like chasing invoices. I'm like, oh. I don't really, I don't really want to go back to that. So yeah, it was at the back of my brain of would that make me happy being go back, going back to that situation? Um, and again, like very frank conversation with my boss of not sure I'm ready to come back yet. Um, what do you think about another six months off? And he was like, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Um, like you don't look like you're ready to come back. Um, to slot in, but that's where they then said it's a one-time offer. Like you either take it now or you don't get it offered for at least another five years, um, as an absolute minimum. Um, I was like, right. Okay. So if I'm not happy, why am I going to force myself to go back to something where I'm then not going to get that offer for another five years? I I might as well take this now. How do you reconcile that within yourself though, that you're like I'm, you know, in my late twenties, I'm making good money. I have a stable job and career yeah. and I'm very successful. And yeah. I think I just want to chuck it all in and go do something else. You know, you've got the voice of reason and probably friends, family, society, everyone yeah. telling you like, this is what yeah. Yeah. you're supposed to be doing. This is what is right. Yeah. And then you've obviously got something internally that's like, this isn't right. But yeah. how do you, a lot of people, I think have that conversation or, or within themselves. Yeah. But. You just go, and I've spoken to a lot of people, especially it's so sad when you meet older people, like in their sixties and seventies and they're like, Oh, I wish I could have done this or that, but I had these responsibilities. And oh, back in those days, like you just, you just just worked and you just, you just did it. Yeah. It was, there was a huge amount of inner turmoil, a huge amount going on in my brain going, but that's the right thing to do. And I think if you spoke to my mum, she would a hundred percent agree going, I was not in a good place. Like I had so much going on my brain. I couldn't figure out what was the right thing to do, where my priorities lay anymore. Um, and I'm actually very lucky that my cousin in Abu Dhabi works in HR and a lot of her work over there was helping people figure out how to get the best from themselves. So I was actually very lucky to be spent that week out with, with my cousin Catherine. And, um, she helped me through a series of, um, sort of tests, basically what she did with her staff at work, um, go, 
where do my priorities sit? What makes me happy? What's driving me in life? And it actually sort of con- sort of came around that it wasn't money anymore. Money wasn't going to make me happy. So having that high flying job that paid well wasn't going to tick my boxes anymore. Um, it just wasn't where I was focusing any of my energy on. I was actually looking at sort of, um, friendships and life experiences and, um, sort of pushing myself, um, sort of on that side of things rather than going, I need to achieve in a career just wasn't ticking my boxes anymore. So that was probably what pushed me more to turn around and say, I'm going to take those six months now. I'm not going to come back to work and be miserable. Um, not, not miserable is probably not the right word. Um, I'm not going to, yeah, come back to something that I know isn't going to make me doesn't happy. fill your cup. You're just yeah. not fulfilled. Yeah. I'm just doing going every, through the yeah, yeah. Just doing it each day as it comes sort of thing, not enjoying life to the full. I'm like, I know I want to go out and get some life experiences, enjoy things a little bit more. Um, so yeah, that sitting down, actually getting to sit down with my cousin and having some pretty frank conversations, um, with her and with my mum, um, sort of helped me go, okay, it's not going to make everybody happy, but it's going to make me happy. So maybe I need to go down that line and take those extra six months off and just go and do, go and do something a bit different. Um, and I knew I'd always wanted to come to Australia and, and be on the cattle station and yeah, chase the cows with the horses. And, um, yeah. yeah, sort of. So I thought, stop it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to see if I can get that job, um, over here or at least just get over here and then just see how it goes. Like I had a pot of money sat to one side. Um, so I was like, let's just do it. Let's just make that leap. And it was scary as hell because it was so out of the norm. I'd been so used to just doing the nine to five, well, not even the nine to five, the seven till six, <laughs> um, and just sort of towing the line and doing that. And then I actually get to turn around and go, I'm not going to tow the line anymore. A lot of people go, wow. Oh my God, you're brave. And I'm like, well, am I? Am I brave? Or am I just doing what makes me happy? I'm like, there's, I am brave to a certain extent because it's going somewhere like I've got family in Australia, but they're not up here. They're down in Sydney. Um, so yeah, it's going and experiencing something way, way out of the norm and out of my comfort zone and actually pushing myself. So it's, um, yeah, it's brave to a certain extent, but it's also just striving for what makes you happy in life and just going, let's just go and do it. Let's not just sit back and dwindle life anymore. Life is short. It's not forever. And there's only certain things you can do in life when you're a certain age and that sort of stuff. So you've just got to crack on and do it, um, really, and just go, stuff it. <laughs> Let's hop on that plane for 24 hours and see how it all turns out. And yeah, it's it's turned out pretty well. I'm not going to lie. It's turned out all right. <laughs> well, oh, hasn't turned out for Willow. He's just waking up. We might all take a quick break and we'll let Willow. Yeah, is that all right? Yeah. <laughs> Before you met Ali, what did you know about Australia and cattle stations? Like, did you actually know what they were? Oh, no, I knew nothing about cattle stations. Um, obviously knew about Australia. Um, like I've got, um, two cousins that live over here. Um, and a girl who I went to university with had moved over here. She was up in WA. Um, so I'd seen a little bit about it, but not a huge amount. Um, I, I knew more about coastal stuff. So. Bondi Beach. I'm <laughs> watching Bondi Rescue a lot. <laughs> That's pretty much the extent I knew about Australia. I didn't really know about the outback, about cattle stations, about anything what life in this sort of situation would entail really at all. So it was all very fresh to me when I got here. And your 
three month stint that was maybe going to be six months has now turned into three years with a fiance and a baby. Yes. <laughs> and you are, you are a permanent long term staff member at Mount Riddick, like definitely not a backpacker that's yes. just here for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about what life's like today, what you do on the station. Well, obviously it's a little bit different today now yes. that you've got a baby, but you know what the last couple of years have been like for you. And I know there's some connection with the work you do out here to what you initially wanted to do or what you were interested in back in England. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. So, um, I initially came out really to help back with getting the horses fit, exercising them, um, and then doing a bit of other stuff if, um, sort of time permitted. So yeah, when I first came out here, so we did, we did do, go and do a bit of mustering because, we do mustering with the horses here. So it's part and parcel of working and exercising them. So yeah, getting my head around how to move cattle with a horse, <laughs> not with a tractor and trailer like you do in England. Um, so yeah, completely different. And then sort of as time progressed, um, I just sort of stepped into the boots of just saying like, if there's anything that wants doing, um, I'll give it a go sort of thing. So I've done the cooking, the gardening, um, helping out with any elements of bookwork that Beck might want to hand with. So if she wants, um, any of the fuel, um, stuff sorting out with the cars, um, contacting, um, any of the suppliers in town and putting orders in for food so that someone can go in and collect stuff. So pretty much anything. Like if, if I'm given a job now, I can give it a good go. Um, so since coming out here, I've also got my truck license. So I've got my heavy rigid, I think it is. Um, so yeah, I can take the UD and go and take a group of cattle away um, to one of the yards if I need to, or go and pick a horse up, um, from Tennant Creek if it's been trucked up here. So yeah, I can step into most boots I would like to think, or at least give it a try um, and give it my best shot of, of giving it a go. So yeah, going and doing a bit of fencing and doing the cattle work and that sort of stuff. So all way, way apart from what I had um, been doing as a desk job in England, but all sort of, it does tie back to my degree to a sentiment because uh, Beck and Steve are very interested in running their property um to the best that they can. So that is looking after your land and looking after your animals and all that side of animal husbandry, your management of grazing, all of that sort of stuff is things that I did learn at university. It's just on a very different scale um, and with different landscapes um, and soil types and grass types. Like it's <laughs> not the green rolling pastures of England. It's very different. So it's... um. Yeah, uh, does draw back to my degree. And I like to try and keep things tied in with what I learned at university. Like I spent four years studying um, about that sort of thing. If I can use it, I might as well give it a try. So um, if there's stuff that we can look into. So I, I know Beck and Steve have been interested in looking at the carbon farming side of things. So um that is harking back to like some of the sustainability side of things that I did at university. It was all still very new when I studied at university, but it does hark back to that side of my degree and looking at the sustainability side of land management. Um, so yeah, if I can implement an element of my degree where I can, I'll, I'll give it a good shot. It's going to be different, but there's certain elements that I can use and try and draw in, um, and, and sort of help me, um, which will then in turn help Beck and Steve and sort of the running and management of, of Mount Riddick. Like if I can offer a little nugget of information or learn something new, I'm always keen to learn something new. Um, which it, then it does also help with me keeping up with my chartership because it 
keeps me current with the current situation of what's going on. So that if I did ever want to go back to being a chartered surveyor, I've got new knowledge and new information, which I can draw upon to then get me back into my chartership. So it's, if I can link it and tie it, I will do. Um, it's just a slightly different scale out here. Um, I just need to jump in. And, um, so Fran has, I, I guess most people would do this, hasn't talked herself up quite enough. Um, so by being a permanent staff member, her and Abra are like the two, the two main staff members here. Yeah. Um, Beck did say, was telling me the other day that basically you guys are like the assistant managers that, you know, cause you're just like, Oh, I do some cooking. I do some cleaning. <laughs> I do some gardening. You know, I can drive a truck if I need to. Um, Beck and Steve do often, you know, have to leave the station for various parts of, of station related yeah. activities yeah. or, you know, anything. And Beck says that you guys are basically the, the managers when they're not there. So I just, just thought we should give people a more accurate idea of what you do and what your capabilities are as the as a management team. But you've been in this job for three years now. So that's a fairly long time, you know, and you've got no, as far as I know, no intention of going anywhere else. Talk to me about what it, life feels like today versus what life felt like in your old job. Yeah, it's um, it's the same but different. Uh, if that sort of makes any sense, like there's still obviously day to day pressures of any job. Um, there's things that you want to get done, and um, especially out here, you've got to be quite fluid. Um, because things change can can change pretty quickly. Um, like one day you'll be doing something and then you I'll get a phone call from Abby saying I'm stuck. You've got to come and pull me out, and then that's like the rest of your afternoon that's just done um so yeah you've got to be have that flexibility to change and then obviously life is very different now i've got willow um it's it's <laughs> worlds and worlds apart from anything i've ever done being a mother is um a very rewarding but tough job i'm sure any mum will say that that it it's really hard it's really really hard and relearning how to juggle life when you have a small person attached to you 24 hours a day is um, yeah, unexplainable. Um, no one can ever prepare you for that. So it's getting your head around, um, life on a station, um, and then life with a baby. Um, and pairing the two together is, yeah, it's been challenging. Um, but it's, it, it has its benefits. Like I wouldn't want to raise a child in any other situation, really. Like I look back at life in England and it was just hectic. It was go, go, go all the time. And I think that's just England full stop. There's just so many people crammed into such a small space that you don't get the quiet and the time to stop and the peace like you would have out here. Um, you are constantly on the go. Um, and yeah, I, I look at it and I think, yeah, no, I, I like raising Willow here. She can be a child for as long as she wants to be out here. There's no, no pressures of having to grow up quickly just because of the nature of the situation that you're living. They can be kids when they live out in the bush. They can be feral. They can go and run around in puddles when it rains and yeah, just have, have that part of life that it's, it's still there in England, but it's, it's much shorter. I feel like, yeah, the kids in England, they've got to grow up a lot quicker looking at my nieces. They, they, yeah, they're, they're, they're what, seven and nearly five. Um, but I, I look at them, and I think, oh, they're, they're very mature for seven and five year olds. Like they've, they've had to grow up, especially with the situation we've got now. My God, <laughs> coronavirus has been a huge spanner in the work that they, yeah, they've had to grow up and be, be more grown up quickly. Whereas out here, the kids can be kids and yeah, it's, 
it's a very different situation from what I had when I was living in England, but it's, I wouldn't change it. Just put it that way. You, I suppose you focus mostly on Willow just then, but what about you? What about, you know, you had a job for eight years and you had your life and now you've been in another job for three years. Yeah. And you're still here. And I think even before Willow, you would have been here. And I'm sure yes. Avro obviously played a, a, a hand in that. But even, you know, say, even if you'd loved Avro, but you'd had the same environment that you had in England, I'm sure it would have just resulted in the two of you going somewhere else, you know, it's, yeah. or, yeah. you know, if it wasn't the right fit. So how has being here been and felt different to what you had in, in your previous job and life? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, I find it a much better pace of life for me here. Um, looking back at how it was in England, it was, like I said, it was so busy all the time. Like you get me time, but it's not quality me time. Like you don't actually get to sit down and assess yourself. Whereas here, You've got the time to do that and the quiet to do that. You just don't get that um, back home in England. You, I always find that the the friends I've made here and the life I have here is probably much more genuine than I had. There. I've got. Don't get me wrong. I have got genuine friends from back in England, and I I still talk to them. I still care for them very much. But I look at the bigger situation there, and it it wasn't so genuine. Everyone seems to is because everything's so fast moving. Friendship groups change very quickly. Whereas here generally tends to be if you make friends in the outback, they are friends for life because everyone's on the same page with the situation that you're in. And I think it proves for a much more genuine situation, which then in turn makes you much happier um, as a whole. Um, it's not a surface happy. Um, you there's, there's it's it's internally happy as well. And I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of that is my situation here is that, uh, yeah, no, we, we are both very happy here. Um, and I'm adjusting to life. Um, cause it's so different. Like I, I've talked to mum and I've had some struggles since I've had Willow and mum's just gone, look, look at the adjustments you've had in your life as a whole over the past three years. Like you have moved halfway across the world to a situation that is completely different to what you have had in the UK. And like, it's still a job and it still carries the day-to-day things, but the pace of life is much, much slower. So you've got to think about that. You've found um, your partner in life and you've had a baby. Like those three things are huge adjustments to take in. So I think mentally and physically, I'm still adjusting to that. Um, but I know if I look at myself and actually sit down and think about life now, um, I feel I'm much happier and much more adjusted to it. And therefore, longevity wise, I myself, I've got more longevity in a job because you're happier and you're not constantly stressed all the time and thinking, am I happy in this? And constantly questioning yourself. You can go, yeah, I'm happy here. I'm enjoying this. Like this is, I can see myself doing this for a long time, um, which is, it's very satisfying to sit and look at and you're not constantly going, what's the next thing? Do we need to be thinking about the next thing? If we had to do that, how would Willow adjust to that? Um, and would we be able to do that as a couple sort of thing? It's, it's, we're happy here as a family unit. It's not, you haven't got to break those things up as to if you've got to move 
is it going to work for everybody? Which in like internally in life, it doesn't always happen. It's very rare that that sort of thing happens and comes along. So if you've got a good thing, like you go, I'm going to stick with it for a bit longer. <laughs> if it's working, I'm going to roll with it. And yeah, just make, make a life for ourselves. Um, and I can see that happening here. Whereas I was in a bit of a rut back in England. I was like constantly chopping and changing and thinking, Oh, what's the next thing? What's this? What's that? And just, yeah, yeah. Internally, you're just going. The more and more you think about it, you go, "Yeah, you're really not happy with this." Like it's, it's on all levels. Things are just not joining together. Um. So yeah, like I've had a lot of ju- adjustments to have to make over the last three years, and like I said, I'm still still making them really. But the bigger picture is, I'm I'm much happier, much more settled, and much more content in life. Um. And yeah, I, I do find it hard being away from family. Um, and especially at the moment with no one being able to travel, it's been a bit of a shocker that no one can come and see this. Cause I think certainly my mum would, would get it if she got here. She would understand. Um, cause she is someone that loves wide open spaces and peace and quiet. And that is life here. Really. You can just get away from the hustle and bustle and, and find that inner peace and that happiness. Um, and yeah, so I, th- I can't, I can't wait to share that with family when they can eventually get here. God knows when that's going to be. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I can share it as much as I can over phone calls and photographs. And I've just got to be happy with that at the moment. And I think that'll be the next big adjustment is getting my family here and just showing them this is life and this is why I'm happy. Um, and, and showing them that. Yeah, I, I may have seemed happy on the surface back in the UK and, and with life there. Um, but internally it just wasn't sitting right. And I've now find, found my place really as it would be, um, in life. And it's, yeah, it's ticking all the boxes. You spoke just now about the big adjustments you've been going through in the last couple of years. With all of that going on, how do you look after yourself? <laughs> it's fallen by the wayside a little. <laughs> um, um, it's the little things. Um, so taking five minutes to go and have a cup of tea. I'm just having a bit of peace and quiet and talking to my mum. Um, that's a big one, which admittedly I'm not as good as I should be. I got much, much better since I've had Willow, but that is, yeah, just ringing mum and just having a chat about how's your week been? What have you been up to? And, and just, yeah, just chatting through things. That's, that's something that is a bit of self-care as it would be for myself. Um, and get, very much so now since I've had Willow getting back into my, my riding. Um, obviously that hasn't happened for probably properly for six, six months or so. Um, and that was very much my happy place. Like I came here to ride horses and cause it made me happy. Um, so I've, yeah, getting back on that ball and and getting into it again and and finding that having that as my release my happy place is yeah that's a big part of it I need to get back into that um I'm just thinking so when we rode the other day did you say that was about the third time you'd been back on yeah so Fran got on for the third time since she'd had her baby or since before you know she went on maternity leave uh we ended up doing like 10k so I don't know if that was your happy place that day no surprisingly so it was I was like it was my happy place for like the first couple of hours and then like at one point I was like this is not my happy place (laughs) it's like this is getting a bit hot now 
yeah. yeah, a little bit sunburned. Everything hurts. <laughs> that dodgy knees flaring up again. Yeah. No, surprisingly, so I felt all right at the end of that. It was the next morning. I'm just like, oh man, that hurts. Woo. I've not used those muscles in a little while. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And to finish up, looking back on your story so far, what is the biggest lesson that you have learned along the way? I think it's very much do what makes you happy, not what makes everyone else happy. Like people can, yeah, take and take in other people's advice. Um, cause invariably you're going to have some very wise people in, the, in your life, but they're not you. Um, so you've got to follow along the route of what actually makes you happy and happy as a whole, not just happy in a part. And if that means making some people not that happy about your life decisions, well, tough. It's your life. You've got to live it the way you want to do it. So if it's going to, it's going to mean making some tough decisions along the way. That's certainly very much for me that has been actually sitting down and going, what do you want to do? Um, and they're, they're hard conversations to have. And I know sometimes a lot in life, people will avoid them because they're very, very hard things to do. And invariably it means making a very big change, but you've got to go bigger picture um, and go, if that makes me happy as a whole, jump in the deep end and do it. Um, and you'll be all right. You'll come out the other end. You're okay. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.